Kristen, we've got five movies this weekend to talk about. Everything from animated children's film, young adult fantasy. You've got your dystopic future. Dystopic future. You've got your, uh, you know, your porn star. You've your, got your comedy family movie. That's right. That's right. And I think the for most of these, the common thread here is politics, strangely enough. Mm, interesting. All right, let's, uh, let's get into the politics of multiplex cinema in just a moment. Uh, but first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, producer for The Takeaway. And this is Movie Date. Okay, let's start off with probably the least political film, which would be Disney's Planes. Kristen, do you want to give us a quick summary? What we have is a little crop-dusting plane, Dusty Crop Hopper, who dreams of racing around the world much like a Top Gun fighter pilot. And his dreams may come true if he has the support of his friends, if he follows his heart and the decency in it, and if he has the training regimen from somebody else who's stronger, a drill sergeant perhaps, who can yell at him yes. and force him to push himself to the limits and beyond. And conquer his fear, ironically, of heights. Here's a clip. I'm telling you to forget all this race and malarkey. You just ain't built for it. You're a crop duster. You don't think I know that? You don't think I know that? I'm the one who's been flying back and forth across the same fields day after day, month after month, for years. I've flown thousands of miles, and I've never been anywhere. Oh, that dusty crop hopper. Have we heard this before? Does the story hmm. sound familiar to you, Rafer? Maybe. Well, it certainly reminded me of Turbo. This was oh, my the... God. It was like the same movie, Turbo the Little Snail that wanted to be a race car driver. The little rat who wanted to be a chef. Oh, the little... I, I, yes. It's it, every movie we've yeah. seen before. It, it really goes on and on, doesn't it? Yeah. And let me just say this. I don't have a problem with an old, tired premise if the story is executed in an original, interesting, fun way. And in this case, I felt it was so lazy. Yep. You know, you have Dusty Crop Hopper taken under the wing. Ah, hey. Yes, I did. Under the wing of a drill sergeant who used to be a very, very famous fighter. Plane. Yes, an old World War II Corsair named Skipper, yes. played by Stacy Keach, uh, right? <laughs> yes. Because we couldn't get Paul Newman because he's dead. <laughs> the, guy, the guy who played the same character in Cars. Uh, and we should also mention that Dusty Crop, Crop Hopper is played by uh, the voice of Dane Cook. Yes, that is correct. But we have, like, at one point, he's doing his training regimen, but there's no wax on, wax off moment. There's no, no chasing the chicken around the yard moment. You know what you're doing for training? You're flying. Yeah. Now fly faster, fly. Dusty. Right. And that's right. Now land. Th this is the kind of creativity in this movie. You have a great opportunity to, let's say, meet all of the gang that you're going to be flying with. And what happens? You just introduce each other. Yeah. It's just, hi, I'm right. Dusty. Hi. I'm, hi. I'm yeah. Chug, the, the friendly, amiable, kind of dumb oil tanker. Don't yeah. call me Mater. I'm not voiced by Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> I'm called Chug, and then there's Dottie, the forklift, and yeah, it just goes on and, and on. There's no creativity to anything. Every scene is just what it is. I think one of the problems, I was noticing this in the film, 
Um, it was. It seems to me, not not knowing much about planes, it seems really well researched. There's a lot of what sounds like really authentic plane talk in this movie about <laughs> cornering and and your you know your your wing your flaps, your, 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 your land your airspeed records, how airspeed records are kept. I mean, it it really goes on, and it's and here's the thing: a, it's completely boring. And B, not funny at all. There's just nothing funny about two kind of wacky characters discussing the methodology of airspeed record keeping. Uh, And I was wondering, and I I was flipping through the notes, and the director, Clay Hall, is apparently a third-generation aviation – aviator, I should say, aviation enthusiast. He comes from a long line of of aviators. And I kind of thought this might be an example of a movie that got sunk in its – you know, mired in its own research – but I think the real problem is that this is a Disney Tunes release. Disney Tunes is the home video wing of Disney. And they do these kind of – I don't want to be too mean, but they do these kind of lazy sort of B-level – I guess that is kind of mean. These kind of lazy B-level uh, knockoffs, spinoffs of their own – of Disney properties. You know, Beauty and the Beast 8, you know, <laughs> Cinderella 6, Little Mermaid 3. And they do – they have done some theatrical releases, but they're mostly, you know, in, in fairness, they're inexpensive rental material. They're the kind of thing you're going to, you, you know – Put your kid in front of the ex- TV while you make supper. Exactly. You put your kid in front of the TV while you have a cocktail and try not to kill yourself. Exactly. So like, and that's fine. That's yeah, totally sometimes fine. sometimes you just need that. Sometimes but for you a need theatrical, to not kill yourself. Yeah. For a theatrical release, I thought this was really dismal and really below par for – especially for a film that is associated with Disney and Pixar. John Lasseter is one of the executive producers and he's credited with the story. When I, I thought like, what do you mean you're credited? That just means they used your old blueprint from Cars. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So I think we're saying bad date. It was really, really bad. Really bad date. It was so bad. And I hate to keep on saying this week after week. It's one of the worst movies this year. It is. It's it's bad. I feel like I keep saying this week after week about a lot of movies, but this is pretty awful. It is. It is pretty bad. It's a bad, bad, bad date. Bad date. Contrarily, uh, I will say, uh, Kristen, you haven't seen this one. I have. Very quickly, if you're looking for a kid's movie, it's a little scary, maybe more of of a... young teen, pre-teen movie, Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters, the sequel to the first Percy Jackson movie that came out back in 2010 about the the young demigod Percy. He's the uh, half-mortal son of Poseidon. He uh, uh, enrolls in a magical boarding school with other demigod children. And in this Hold film... On, is this Harry Potter? No, and I knew you were going to say that, Chris. And that's, that's, that of course is the big problem with, with Percy Jackson. In this, in this film, he, his male friend and his female friend, just, just like oh, in God, Harry Potter, no. are going to go on a quest and find the golden fleece. Here's a clip. Excuse me, we're trying to get to Florida. <gasps> Our kind of fair. Pricey. Whoa! Maybe we should have flown commercial. Ah! Look out! Calm down. If we didn't know what we were doing, we wouldn't be licensed. So, so this isn't Harry Potter. This is not Harry Potter, but I do feel like, and it will never fully escape the shadow of Harry Potter. But I do feel that the more time that goes by between the Harry Potter films and the less we're sort of comparing it every second of celluloid to the Harry Potter movies, this this series might kind of come into its own. It has some really good special effects, decent support cast, Stanley Tucci, Nathan Fillion. Um, and the main cast, Logan Lerman, who plays Percy, uh, Alexandra Dar- uh, Daddario, who plays his friend Annabeth, 
they're okay. They don't quite have the charisma that the Harry Potter cast has. But I feel like as this series goes on, it could become something worth following. And I think it's a perfectly decent kid date. Mm. Perfectly decent. Well, I, you know what? Kids movies, sometimes that's the best you can do. That's re- sometimes that's the very <laughs> that best really you is. can do, I think, at times. That's so true. What do you say we go from kids to families? Okay. Let's let's talk about a little family called the Millers. A drug dealing family. <laughs> a drug dealing family on a road trip because sometimes you just need to smuggle hundreds and hundreds of pounds of marijuana over the border because all of your stash and all of your money, it got robbed. And so maybe instead of being a small-time marijuana dealer, you're going to traffic a bunch of drugs and make a buttload of money just because you need to get back on track. That's right. You just need to get back on track. But sometimes the best way to smuggle drugs is to look inconspicuous by looking like just a regular suburban family in your RV. Right. And maybe if you don't have a family and maybe if you're not from the suburbs, you need to maybe hire some people to be that family for you. Sure. And that's what Jason Sudeikis' character does in We're the Millers. He hires his neighbor in his apartment complex, played by Jennifer Aniston. She's a stripper who's also down on her luck. She'll be mom. And uh, we have a teenage boy who kind of has an absentee family that never is around for him, another neighbor in his apartment complex who's going to play his son. And then you have kind of a squatter girl in the neighborhood who, you know, who knows if she has a home? Who knows? That's played by Emma Roberts, and that's going to be the daughter. And off you go to Mexico to pick up a whole bunch of drugs in your RV. Right. Here's a clip. Well, I will say one thing. It's about time, I think, that someone tapped into the long-simmering male fantasy of having Jennifer Aniston play a stripper. <laughs> so there is that. We do have that. I have We're to the point Millers. out that it's one of the most downloaded or most watched videos on YouTube. Ah, oh, is that right? Did you know that? No, like I did one not. One of the most watched things is like, do you want to see Jennifer Aniston's stripper routine from We're the Millers? And, and she does have a good one. And and there it is. Really? Do you think it's that good? I mean, you know. Maybe it's just because I rewatched Showgirls recently. I'm like, you can do better, Jennifer <laughs> well, Aniston. You well, can do better than this. Let's not let's not let's not compare everyone to the the Olympian the Olympian achievement of Showgirls. That's well, not fair. Know I love Showgirls, oh, and I know you I. love Showgirls too. And I yes. wanted her to be maybe a little bit closer to Showgirls. That being said, she does a perfectly fine job being a sure. stripper in this movie. It's and very flash dance, yeah, it's a, it's, <laughs> right? It's a very it's a flash dance homage, right? Yes, yes, very much so. Well, how did you like this? What did you think of this? It's basically a family values comedy in disguise, despite the drug despite the drug lord uh, subtext. You're basically talking about your typical family values comedy. Did you like it? Yeah, you know, I have to say, Jason Sudeikis. He's so likable. Yeah, he's fun. I find him so likable. I totally enjoyed every minute he was on screen. I thought he was delightful. I thought Jennifer Aniston um, was great in this also, being Jennifer Aniston, as Mm -hmm. she always is. Uh, I felt if there was any weak link in the movie, um, Emma Roberts' character, I felt, should have been better or maybe her acting should have been better or something else. She gets kind of sidelined. They don't – they they forget to use her. Um, But I did like Will Poulter as – as Kenny, the kind of ner- the ner- sort of dweeby, eager to please latchkey kid. I, yeah. I thought he's actually quite endearing and oh. probably the, the most likable character in the film to I, me. I agree. I totally agree. He, he's kind of a screw up in lots of ways, but he's well-intentioned. He's the kid with a heart of gold who really yeah. just wants to be loved. And, right. But yeah, I, I felt Emma Roberts' character was the weak link in this movie. But um, other than that, I 
really I enjoyed it. It's it's schlocky. It's just like a family vacation movie is uh, kind of predictable. And yet, despite all of this stuff, it totally won me over. I totally enjoyed this movie. Great date for me. I would really recommend it. A great date for you? I totally thought it was delightful. Really? Yeah. I thought it was really dumb. (laughs) I didn't say it was smart, (laughs) Rafer. Sometimes smart and delightful don't go together, right? I mean, that's true. But here's my main objection to the film. I mean, I will say... In the first place, I like the idea of the premise. I like the idea that a drug dealer and a cast of essentially social untouchables, right? The, stri- the stripper, the runaway teen, Kenny, not so much, you know, but but a misfit. I like the idea that these guys could get together and in that classic way by pretending to be a family will ultimately come to feel like a family. It's nice and and the I drug just love dealing. That the way you described it, it made my heart just right. Grow. I mean, it, just it, a little like my heart just kind of went, oh yeah. And, and, and isn't that what life is, Rafer? That's exactly right. I mean, I feel like so many Shakespearean comedies, so many romantic comedies, are all based on this idea, right? That if someone kind of throws you together and puts you in the situation, and you kind of do it, you'll grow to love it. And I and there's a lot of ro- there's a lot of room in that material, I think, for some funny and endearing and interesting moments. But instead, what we get is all this weird sexual humor. You get Nick Offerman and Catherine Hahn as this uh, kind of Squaresville Midwestern couple who have all these weird sexual kinks. They, it, they also are an RV couple that they right, run into right. in the RV scene because part of the RV road tripping scene is RVers all meet each other all the time. Right, right. And uh, and I just – I don't understand what that's doing in there. I don't understand why we have to have some kind of – weirdo incest jokes about the I mean they're not actually a family but the kind of you know oh let's practice kissing you know now I'm going to kiss my brother and then why does Jennifer Aniston have to join in that why why Hold would a on. grown adult off, do that we started off this whole thing Ray for you saying how great it was to see Jennifer Aniston in a stripper routine and now you're taking issue with her kissing I just kissing is a problem but stripping's awesome but we're supposed to like this character <laughs> we're supposed to like this character and, a, and a, a grown a grown woman doesn't get all cougarish on some poor dumb teenage kid who's supposed to be kind of being her son and who she's in some kind of adult guardianship Rafer, role to Rafer have you been in this situation before I, I I have not well then how can you say that's not what happens <laughs> have you okay. ever have you ever been a 45 year old stripper woman? who has a fake teenage son that needed help kissing. Not recently. And since you haven't, maybe we shouldn't judge. Okay. Maybe we should I'm just... judging. <laughs> I'm judging. And I feel... And here's, you know, I just... I feel like it was an opportunity wasted. You had this kind of interesting idea about about the, the drug dealer, the amiable drug dealer, right, by the way, which is interesting. You don't... That's not a guy that you would have seen 20 years ago. You would not have seen any kind of drug dealer, let alone pot, we're cool with the pot dealer. If, if, if Jason Sudeikis had been peddling heroin, it would have been a whole different mm, thing, right? Yeah. But pot, that's okay. Today, we're all just totally cool with pot. Eh, everyone smokes pot. It's okay to be a drug dealer, right? Yeah, Sanjay Gupta just came out on CNN and was like, I was totally wrong. Pot's fine. Did you <laughs> see that? No, I did not yeah, see that. just put out a statement yesterday like, I was totally wrong about that's pot. It's right. totally cool. <laughs> it's and like, yet. It's like Dr. Sanjay, really? Yeah. Well, wow. yeah, I mean, you know, come on. California is, you know, f- filled with medical marijuana clinics. Oh, I mean, Rafer, you're from California. Um, to you, marijuana is nothing, but to some of the country, it's still kind of a big deal. It's still a big deal, deal but, I feel like th- but I feel like like, you know, you've got the show Weeds. You've got uh, even something like Californication in a way. You've got a lot of very blithe drug use going on. And I feel like this film is kind of part of that. And it's an interesting way to kind of mainstream it. 
I also think it's interesting that though that we that we also know that if you go up the chain, up the economic chain a little bit, then things get ugly, right? Yes. Then, then you go to Mexico, and then everyone's killing each other. Yeah. If it's just Jason Sudeikis, though, it's like, oh, I'm your friendly neighborhood dentist. Let right. me call you because I want some pot. Or, right. I'm your friendly neighborhood school teacher, so I'm going to call. Like he's like the, the milkman. He's yeah. like the, he's like the milkman of yesteryear. All of his you know? customers are just like all the best citizens in his suburban moms, yeah. the chef, <laughs> the executive. Right. That's kind of interesting, but I just. I, and all that's kind of interesting. I, I just felt that so much more could have been done with this. It could have been so – it really could have been a, a, a heartwarming, endearing, edgy it comedy. No. It was. It was, a, it was a gross, icky, lame, sexual, cheap humor comedy. I want to be in this family. I want to be a Miller. <laughs> okay, Kristen. I'm going to totally be a Miller. My new name is Kristen Miller. You say great date. I say bad date. Oh, poo-poo on you, but I loved it. I uh, loved it. All loved right. It. All right. So I think we should go from drugs to pornography, and we should do Lovelace next. Uh, for those of you who don't know the name Lovelace, it's the Does last anybody name. Not know that's, that's what I'm just saying. Like, you know, if you don't know the name, it's, 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 it's extraordinary how famous she is given that, you know, she hit her peak in 1972. Linda Lovelace, uh, born Linda Borman, uh, became Linda Lovelace in the, in the film Deep Throat, the first mainstream mega hit porn film, uh, the X, X-rated film that was played in uh, proper theaters, respectable newspapers had to go review it. It was water cooler conversation, a must see. All the late night shows with <laughs> jokes about it. Endless Johnny Carson TV material. Casters would like go and see it. Uh, celebrities would say, "Oh yeah, I'm just I'm going to see that tonight." Sure, yeah, it became a huge deal, and uh, Linda Lovelace was held up as. Uh, kind of the poster girl for sexual freedom, sexual liberation, and then later, uh, years later, in 1980, wrote an, an autobiography called Ordeal, in which she revealed that her then husband Chuck Trainer uh, had actually forced her into it um, at times at gunpoint, beat her uh, during the filming, and had also pimped her out to uh, to men, uh, including one uh, gang rape, and so this changed the Linda Lovelace story uh, dramatically. Let's hear a clip. Anyway, I just thought I'd come uh, and introduce myself before we started going at it. You okay? I'm a little nervous. I've never had lines to talk before. We got the best job in the world. We just tune everybody out, live in the moment, like we're the only two people on the planet. Tune everybody out, live in the moment. Exactly. So that is Amanda Seyfried starring as Linda Lovelace. Amanda Seyfried, who... I have to say she's done a big variety of stuff over the years when you think about yeah. um, everything from Mean Girls to Big Love on TV. I'm not sure if you ever watched Big mm-hmm, Love mm-hmm, yep. and Mamma Mia. I mean, she's done a – oh, and that terrible movie Dear John, but you love Channing Tatum. So you probably, I do. You probably loved that movie <laughs> even though that movie's awful. Um, I'll, I'll take the fifth on that one. <laughs> so um, I think some people might be surprised that she was the one who was cast as Linda Lovelace in this movie just – She's done a big variety of roles, but none of them have been so sexy. Really. Right. I think yeah. I think there was some trepidation uh, on that too, because uh, there there is at least was a competing yes. Linda Lovelace film called Inferno with Lindsay Lohan cast as Linda Lovelace. And then Lindsay Lohan, because she's unreliable, got pulled out of the movie and then replaced, I think, by Olivia Wilde. I think that's right. 
And um, then um, and then let's not forget also there was a documentary made a few years ago also. Right. Was it called Inside Deep Throat, I believe? Maybe. I think it was called Inside Deep Throat, <laughs> which was also about well, Linda Lovelace. So this isn't our first and only time visiting the Linda Lovelace story on film. but That's for sure. What did you think, Rafer? I thought this was a – a very tastefully done, very respectful, rather artfully directed and and artfully told film for a biopic. Um, some great some great casting. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard, of course, as the wonderfully creepy Chuck Trainer. Oh, so um, creepy! A completely unrecognizable Sharon Stone as yeah. You know what? After the movie, um, I was like, who was that? Me too. I had to look it up. I had to look it up. Me too. I had not. I had not. I just my eyes had glossed over her on the uh, on the on the the press notes that I had, and I was I was flabbergasted to see that that was Sharon Stone. She's quite good. Um, lots of good bit parts. Uh, James Franco is Hugh Hefner, of course, right? Uh, Chris Noth is in it. Uh, Bobby Cannavale. Um, a, a very good cast. I felt ultimately that the film was not very illuminating. It didn't tell me really that much about Linda Lovelace as a person. It didn't really address society's sort of weird relationship to porn, the way society kind of loves and embraces and increasingly mainstreamizes porn, uh, and yet it's still stigmatized. We are still embarrassed by it. We still keep it at arm's length. Um, It doesn't get into that. And it glossed over some of the uh, more contradictory things in in Linda Lovelace's life. Uh, she published a couple of at least two, one or one if not two, maybe more, autobiographies before her ordeal memoir that were very sex positive, pro-porn, every, you know, this is great, I'm, I'm having a wonderful time. Um, you know, the movie suggests that she was a novitiate on Deep Throat, that this was kind of her first ever foray into porn. Yeah, and it wasn't. And it wasn't. Yeah, um, and it wasn't her done, last either. Right. Right. And um, some of the – there were reports that surfaced later of these early uh, loops, these short films that she had done, that she had done um, some of which were, let's just say – Hardcore. Grotesque. Um, there's a, there was one involving uh, a dog. Yeah. Um, and this, I think – I don't think if they had included that, I don't think it would have undermined or defamed Linda Lovelace – I think it would have added an, a layer of, contra- of of complexity and some interesting contradictions to her character that I thought would have been interesting because I just I don't I don't feel like you have to choose between the born again the born again Christian that she became or the slave girl that she claimed she was or the you know sexually liberated hedonist that we all thought she was there there's some deeper truth in there that the movie doesn't quite get to yeah. Do, do you do you agree I, or, I, or did you or what? I, I actually I agree, but I think my biggest problem with it wasn't that she – I mean it would have been great if she was painted as a more complex character. But yeah. one of my biggest issues with the movie was just the storytelling device. The story is told twice. Once where yes. we see her – the oh, whole story I, is I like told. I like though. I don't think it was done well enough. So oh, it's yeah. told once where it's like – Look, here's this porn superstar. She's a big deal. Hugh Hefner's courting her, and 
look at what a big deal she is. Everyone right. on the late night shows is talking about her and joking about her, even the nightly news. People are lined up around the block. That's and then the, the sto- it's the glossier, yeah. rosier, more fun version yeah. of, of her story, the story that we all thought we were seeing at the time. Yeah. And then the second story, the, the story is told all over again from beginning to end where we see her being abused and being forced into all of this, being a sex slave, being gang right. raped and so on. Here's my problem with the storytelling device. I felt that they become they became too blurry and overlapped with each other. If, huh. if it was going to be done really, really well, I felt the first version should have just been pure gloss and it should have included more about society. It should have included more about uh, the social mores, about politics in America. It should have been hmm. about a lot more stuff that why why this was a big deal. Right. And it really should have not included much about her perspective at all. And I think that the filmmakers chose to give hints that were way too heavy-handed in the first telling of the story. We already see the bruises. We already have conversations about... That's true. And it it just seemed that the storytelling device should have been kept completely separate. The first one really should have just been about this is what it looks like from the outside. And the second story really should have just been this is what it's like from the inside. And I I don't think that they knew how to keep those, you know, those two parts separate enough for us. Well, so ultimately, maybe we're maybe we're finding different roads to the same point. Um, it's it's. I mean, I I I did. I actually liked that um, that that device. I liked I liked version one and then version two. Um, but ultimately, I think what we're both complaining about. Am I right here? Is that the film just just was a little bit light, uh, not very nuanced, not very complex. Yeah. Yeah. They should trust that we can handle that. Huh. Yeah. And, and I just don't think that they trusted us to be as smart as we are as audience members. Yeah, yeah. So. But but all that said, I think it's nice to see someone. Um, I think it's. I think it's. It, it. She had a. She had a very rough life, Linda Lovelace. And I, I think it's in a way it's nice to see a movie that wanted to treat her with respect and sort of mm-hmm. and give her uh, give her some dignity. Uh, she we should say she's dead. She died I think uh, in the early 2000s after a car crash. Mm-hmm. But it's and it, and I do think there's something that kind of that kind of touched me about the way they wanted to sort of give this woman a, a kind of kind of treat her with a kindness that she didn't really find very often um, when she was alive. And I, yeah. I liked that. Ultimately, I would say it's an okay date. I a, would agree a pretty with good you. date. I, I right. would say it's an okay date also. It's not you know, it doesn't hit it out of the ballpark for me. No. I actually thought the documentary Inside Deep Throat was better than uh, which this. Which I haven't seen. But, um, and, but you know, that being said, I, I loved the cast. I thought that it was a perfectly fine movie. I think a lot of people will learn a lot from it. And, you know, I, I always think Amanda Seyfried's so enjoyable to Yeah, watch. she's really she's good. She's always great. Peter Sarsgaard, always oh, love him. Okay. And great, and, you know, it's the 70s. Endlessly, <laughs> endlessly entertaining costumes and hair and hairstyles. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard's mustache is almost just worth the price of attention. Um, so let's talk about, let's wrap all this up. Let's wrap up our political weekend our political review with uh Elysium this is the new sci-fi action summer blockbuster with Matt Damon playing Max it's in the future Max is a poor earthbound impoverished factory worker uh but up out in this out in space is a giant spinning space station called Elysium where all the rich people live and life is good uh Max lives in Los Angeles uh, he gets uh, radiation poisoning during a workplace accident, and now he must travel to Elysium, somehow infiltrate Elysium, where they have miracle technology that can cure any disease. Here's a clip. I know why you left in anger. I understand. Look, 
If I was as smart as you, I would have left too. Have dinner with me. Just... All right, I'll, look, I'll settle for a coffee. No. Oh, I gotta break my other arm to get attention from you. Because I, I will do that. Stop. My life is complicated, Max. I just... I, I, I miss you. Now, Kristen, did you see... Uh, this is by Neil Blomkamp, South African filmmaker. Of who District did 9 District fame. 9. Did you yeah. see District 9? I loved District 9. Me I mean, too. with the exception of the last half hour fighting sequence, but I always say that with every movie. Right, In the last few right. years, it's like... You're always need, mad about that. Don't need the last half hour fighting sequence. You have a laser gun. Get this over with. You know? <laughs> don't don't need that. Your, your hands are made out of knives. Just get it right. over with. Whatever it is, <laughs> right. don't need the last half hour fighting sequence. <laughs> right. But I, Just I, fly that <laughs> X-Wing fighter into the little trench and do it already. <laughs> Kristen says. <laughs> and so District 9, I thought, was really smart. It was uh, an apartheid... Uh, allegory. Uh, allegory, yeah. And, and I mean, and obviously it was, and I was fine with that. And this one is really an allegory about a lot of things about... Um, yes, name a few for uh, me. I, I can almost not I, keep them straight. Maybe it's like a few too many allegories, and I'm just going to... I'm playing my cards right now. There are just a lot of yeah. There's, there's a lot here. So immigration for we, one, yeah, right? undocumented Un- versus we right. Have, we have uh, class issues. We have care. We have the politics issues of when your secretary of defense and your president are infighting. You have your right. bounty hunter who's a loose cannon who's doing your bidding, but maybe he's too much of a loose cannon bounty right. hunter. You have your love story of people who actually were orphans but really needed each other and created their own family with each other but then got separated and then reunite and she already has a family. Right. And then you have your best friend who was part of the underground criminal hacker scene but only does it because he needs to survive. Right. Then you have your populations of people who are all brown in one area and all white in another. That's right. The white people are the rich ones. The brown people are the ones left behind. And they speak I, I, th- I think the I think the, the, the main things we're talking about the, the, main, the main two things that, that this film is really hammering home on is is immigration reform and and healthcare. <laughs> those seem to be those seem to be the main two planks in this movie's platform. As you mentioned, um, every, you know, everyone on Earth. What we're seeing on Earth is Los Angeles, which has essentially become Mexico. Everyone there is is darker skinned, not Matt Damon, but everyone else, and they uh, tend to speak uh, Spanish and English. So the implication is pretty clear that what that what what's happened here is that Earth Earth has become Mexico, and Elysium has become the United States. Uh, Los Angeles looks like Mexico City. Elysium looks like Southampton, uh, right? <laughs> Across between Malibu and Malibu and Southampton. Yes. Uh, um, lots of infinity pools on on Elysium, uh, and that you know, the allegories worked in District Nine. You know, instead of instead of having uh, black people in the shanty towns, it was it was space aliens, uh, and they that was like kind of funny bugs. Yeah, they were like sort of crayfish. Yeah, um, yeah, and it was entertaining, and of course, and it, that was fun because Charlotte Copley, who was the breakout star of District Nine. Uh, f- who was who was once an apartheid enforcer finds himself in this weird biological way becoming one of the bugs. Um, it's it, it worked on so many levels, right? It was an apartheid allegory. It was Kafka. It was all these great things. A lot of fun, low budget, but really brilliantly done and, mm-hmm. and looked really dazzling and really inventive. And so I had really high hopes for Elysium. Uh, and this was going to be Neil Blomkamp's big... Uh, foray into Hollywood. He's, he said, he's gone on record that he was reluctant to hire Matt Damon, that he was reluctant to go the Hollywood route, but he did it. And here it is. We haven't even mentioned that um, Jodie Foster plays the... Uh, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense. for Elysium. Yeah. Right. Um, 
And so what did you think? I think you, I think you have played your cards already, played but what do you my think? Cards. You were up front asking me about allegories, but then I just decided to list the 500 things that are in this movie that are competing with each other. And they really are about 500. And they're just, they're just competing with each other for my attention, yeah. for what is the plot of this movie. Yeah. And then because of that, they would try to put in poignant moments with the characters that just didn't resonate with me because – I had no attachment to these characters because each of the characters is just another trope that's been thrown into the bowl. Right. And I I can't even like m- like muddle through everything that's right. in a salad bowl. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be looking at, what I'm supposed to be attached to, what I'm connecting with. And so I just found it incredibly difficult. The yeah. movie was really – there was just too much there and it was completely the opposite of District 9, which was so simple yeah, and so bit, yes. smart. Yes. So simple and so smart. This was just – I don't want to even call it complex. I just want to call it messy. It's overloaded. Yeah. It's it's completely bogged down. And I think aside from – which I think we should get back to in a minute – the 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 what I would call the 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 ham fistedness of the <laughs> allegories in this movie. They're so blunt and they they hit you over the head so often. But aside from that, it falls into the same traps that I think a lot of C grade science fiction crappy movies fall into where you're just asking yourself really obvious logical questions not not nitpicky questions but obvious questions why isn't anyone firing on that spaceship we, <laughs> why, why is that the only spaceship that nobody is firing on okay here's matt damon as the impoverished guy with no money you know slaving away down in the slums how come he has this totally awesome metal exoskeleton screwed into his body that allows him to rip people's heads off and nobody else does no one else has Shouldn't this. Everybody have one of those. Wouldn't everyone? Because he's not the only one who's attached with all right. these underground hackers in the right. Yeah, it's like everybody seems to be friends with all these underground hacker criminal. Right. Types. All of then them. You, are. Then you. So there, there are RoboCops everywhere that enforce the peace. Where'd they all go? Matt Damon gets to Elysium. Elysium's now been invaded. Where's your giant robot army force? Where'd they all go? They're nowhere. They are nowhere to be seen. It's it's a lot of these really obvious kind of things that you would expect from kind of a, a early 60s sci-fi clunker. Just dumb stuff. We have paper plates that are the um, spaceships <laughs> yes. and you have aluminum foil outfits and which so is, on. Right, yeah. which is not, I mean, and, and I think the effects look great. There are some great fight scenes, some great explosions. Uh, Charlotte Copley from District 9 comes back. I think he's the most entertaining thing in the film. He's playing that bounty hunter we right. were talking about earlier. Right. The hilarious. one who's just a loose cannon bounty hunter. Right. He's like, and he's, he's totally like a... different than in District 9. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. At first I was like, that's not really, oh, yes it is. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. He's, yeah. like a, he's like a bizarro Chuck Norris. He's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's great and he's completely unhinged and wonderful and wonderful to watch, but so there's there the, there's the sloppy details, and then there's just the overly literal thinking in the movie that really makes it seem boneheaded. And without giving too much away, I'll just say that it ends with what seems like a policy prescription for immigration reform that is just plain stupid. Oh, you don't think that would work for? Um... No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> God, no, I wish I could tell I everybody what this immigration reform policy was going to be. I, I, I don't feel like like the, the dumbest, most naive, mushy-hearted liberal on the planet would advocate this idea. And it, and it was one of the few times where I just kind of thought, you know, 
that dumb liberal Hollywood, what is the matter with them? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is idiotic. And that bugged me. That bugged me. It didn't bug me in District 9. District 9 was smarter and cleverer and more uh, imaginative about it. And Elysium is not. Yeah. I, I, like I said, my number one issue is I just couldn't even get attached to any of the characters. Yeah, and it's right. It's just too muddled. And I would have been able to forgive a lot, including the really, really asinine solution to all of our immigration issues. Yes. I would have even been able to accept that if I could have felt anything for any of these characters. Right. The only character I really felt anything for was Diego Luna, yes. who plays uh, Matt Damon's best friend. And that's only because he's got those giant brown eyes. Yeah, and he's really good, Diego that Luna. stare at you and you're just like, yes, I will love you forever, Diego <laughs> Luna, because you are so kind and so gorgeous. And But other than him, I just could not feel anything for anyone in this movie. In that, in that futuristic tank top that looks like it came from the 1970s. Mm, that yes. needs to be hugged and hugged all night. <laughs> I just need to hug that Diego Luna. Well, ultimately, I would say kind of a bad date. Yeah. Not was, a terrible date, but just not very good. Bad. It yeah. was a bad date, right? Yeah. For, okay. Yeah, it was bad. Oh, God. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a bummer because I think you both of us had high hopes for Elysium. Yeah, we did. But you know what? Not Maybe maybe they'll make another movie soon and it'll be about um, something else really important like reproductive rights or education <laughs> or something. It'll be some sort of other allegory. It'll be a sci-fi test scores drama. That's, that's what it'll be. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, since we've since we've trashed most of these movies, um, let's uh, hear from a listener who had one to recommend that we also both liked. Yeah. So Sarah wrote us on our Facebook page, uh, dear Kristen and Rafer. It feels weird and stalkerish to message you both, but I felt strangely compelled. The Melbourne International Film Festival is halfway through its program, and I wanted to share what for me has been one of the most devastating, mind-blowing film experiences of my life. Today, I was lucky enough to watch the director's cut of The Act of Killing, all two hours and 40 minutes of it. And although I'm still processing everything I saw and felt, I was reminded of the wonderful interview you guys did with Joshua Oppenheimer and just wanted to thank you for talking about the film. I doubt many people are going to get a chance to see it, which is a shame. The act of killing should be seen by as many people as possible. There's nothing more spine-tingling than being in a packed, massive theater where no one moves or speaks after the lights come on. That's Sarah from Melbourne, Australia. And um, Sarah, we wanted to point out to you and to all the other listeners, there is a chance to see this, regardless of whether or not it's in the theaters in your town or in your country. It is on video on demand. So yep. if you just Google it, look it up, you'll find that, you know, Act of Killing and then type in VOD, you'll find a way to watch it. It's, yeah. it's totally out there. And um, yeah, it's true. Joshua Oppenheimer was a great interview. This film was really smart and uh, devastating and brilliant. And, yeah. and um, I would totally recommend people see this movie. Yeah. At, at, at this point, I think it is the best film I've seen all year. Wow. It, it really is. I, I just, I can't think of anything that comes, that comes to be even a, even a distant second. I just, I thought that film was so fascinating. I would really, really recommend it. I know it's not the same. Uh, if you have to see it on VOD, I know it's not the same as being in a, having that kind of communal feel of being in a theater. But um, this is one of those movies that I think is, is so good. It's, it's, it's worth renting. So there you go. There's our recommendation yeah. for the weekend. And Sarah, thank you so much for writing in. And that was on our Facebook page. And just want to remind listeners, we always have fun stuff happening on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash movie date podcast. We post things from time to time. There are always conversations going on right now. There are some juicy conversations happening around the 
made-for-television movie Sharknado. Which, said. <laughs> <laughs> which is now also available in England. Uh, th- there was a little something we put up there about the new Diana trailer starring uh, Naomi, Naomi Watts. Watts. Yes. Yeah, and of course, ABC possibly turning Star Wars into a TV series that has a lot of people talking. So log onto our Facebook page, become a friend with us, and tell us what you think about all of the movies. And of course, you can give us trivia answers. That's right. Let's, let's talk about trivia for a second, Rafer. Well, okay, last, uh, last week we were talking about... Um, what was it we were talking about? Oh, the canyons, uh, of course, with uh, James Dean, E E N, James, uh, the porn star, and we were talking about uh, other porn stars that have uh, crossed over, or at least tried to cross over into mainstream cinema. Uh, we found one, and we played this clip. Who the hell is this? This is Inga. She's from Sweden. She's an exchange student, and she's going to be staying with us for a while. Inga. This is our daughter, Wanda. Say hello. Yeah? I'm blowing this joint. We asked for the name of that star and the film, and we did get this correct answer. Hi, Kristen and Rafer. This is Tess from Detroit, Michigan. Um, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Love the show. Have been listening forever. You guys are amazing. Um, I wanted to say the answer for your trivia question is Tracy Lord, and the movie is John Waters' Cry Baby. Although I think that as Tracy Lord has progressed in her film career and TV career, she goes by Tracy Elizabeth Lord. And, yeah, thanks so much for the podcast. I listen to it all the time. Love it. Bye. Now, first of all, Tess in Detroit, awesome work. Thank yes. you so much for calling in. We're so thrilled that you called in. And second of all, we have to point out that while we did get several right answers this week, Tess, you were so thorough. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so nice thorough. research on yeah. that one. Tracy Elizabeth Lords. Yeah, that's that's very very true. So was there another Tracy Lords out there that she had to distinguish herself uh, from? Maybe, maybe Elizabeth just sounds a little classier. Maybe, as you said, Rafer, you, you were pretty sure Tracy had two eyes in it. So I, I don't know. I don't know why I thought up. that. Anything to class that up. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I thought it was spelled like Hawaii, but for some strange reason, I thought I had two. Eyes. Maybe it's because of the Tracy Guns. Did he have two eyes in his name? Is that what I'm thinking of? I, anyway, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't but, know. you know, Tracy Lord's right on, girl. Good job making it. That's right. From, from one type of film to another type of film. And great job, Tess. Thanks for calling in. And let's talk about this week's trivia question. And in honor of We're the Millers, drug dealers in the movies. So now, most drug dealers in the movies are men. Sure. If you think about it, almost all of them are men. Matt Dillon and Drugstore Cowboy, Johnny Depp and Blow. Oh, yeah, yes. Johnny Depp and Blow. We have Pineapple Express. We right. have James Franco. We have Rules of Attraction, you were saying. Yes. Uh, you just saw recently with James Vanderbeek. That's right. But once in a while, there are female drug dealers in the movies. Here is a clip of a movie with a female drug dealer. You're stupider than you look. If you think I'm the only one who's going to be losing money, those $3 million, you're going to pay for it. Yeah, you too. Hmm. What is that movie? Very. Who's that drug dealer? <laughs> Who is that drug dealer? Well, I, I do happen to know this one, so I'm not going to say. Okay. Well, listeners, if you know the answer, call us at 5717movies. Or you can log on to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie date podcast.